The limited partner shares in the potential outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but is a passive investor with no day-to-day -day operating requirements, whose liability is limited to the extent of their share of ownership. The limited partner has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. Now they say you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. Are you looking to elevate your network, connect with individuals that bring your average up? The Limited Partner is more than just a podcast. It's a community to learn, to participate, to connect. There's no other community out there like this for Limited Partners. So subscribe to the podcast, but most importantly, join the community at thelimitedpartner.com. Welcome to the podcast with your host, Jake Wiley. Welcome partners. This is your host, Jake Wiley. This week, I'm joined by Ash Patel. He's been a full-time commercial real estate investor for the past 10 years. Ash, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, Ash, I, I love your story. I know you, you host podcasts, you've been investing in real estate, but for our listeners out there, I guess just to get a little bit of a baseline of, of who you are and the story and how you got to where you are and how you can be a full-time real estate investor, would you mind giving us a little background on you and, and your story? Yeah, I was in the corporate world as an IT manager and always knew that I wanted to work for myself. I uh, had a bunch of different businesses over the years and finally found commercial real estate and found my calling. Absolutely love it. And I've done it for now 11, 12 years. I had no idea what I was doing when I got into it. Just bought a mixed use building and uh, is in a college town. And again, like I never should have bought this building. The bricks were crumbling down. It was uninhabitable. But for whatever reason, I bought it and I fell in love with the commercial side of real estate because I had college kids destroying my apartments. And I had a commercial tenant remodeling their space on their dime. So that's what brought me to commercial real estate. What is, uh, do you recall, I'm sure you do, what was it that kind of opened your eyes to commercial real estate or just real estate in general? I always love hearing that story. It's incredible having somebody else pay your mortgage, right? You pay a down payment, you acquire a piece of property, and then you have other people actually paying your note and you get to make some money on top of that. What's better than that, right? And they sign a contract that, this, that says they have to pay you every month for five years. Pretty incredible. Totally. Yeah. That's how I got started too. It makes so much sense. It's tangible, right? Which is really nice too. Yes. How did you get started? I'm a rich dad, poor dad guy, right? So I read the book. And I have, uh, when I got out of college, I was a CPA, worked for a big four accounting firm, actually worked for them again. But there's a lot of restrictions on what we could and couldn't invest in. SEC and all of these things. So like you had to have somebody pre-vet all of your investments and it was just too much of a hassle. So I actually started looking into like, what can they not tell me what to do in? And real estate just happened to be one of those great avenues where nobody can tell you not to buy a house you know, not to buy an investment property. So I did a little bit of research, read the Rich Dad, Poor Dad books. And I was like, well, this is it. This is exactly what I wanted. Like this is, this is going to change my life. And it has, and it totally has. That's my origin story. And it's been an evolution ever since. Lots of lessons learned the hard way. And the moral of the story, Jake doesn't like to be told what to do. Yeah, I, I surely don't want somebody else having the authority to tell me what I can and can invest in for my financial freedom and the future. That's how it felt, 
right? You know, you think about like, this is my life and somebody else gets to dictate, oh, you know, that one doesn't work and this one does work. And it's, you kind of get left with this really strange bag of very sanitized investments in a world where it's already a strange bag where somebody else has chosen them. Think about mutual funds, having that like further sanitized down to stuff that meets somebody else's requirements didn't work for me. And how long did you stay in the finance world? I've been in and out of the finance world my whole career, but I moved through, let's say seven years. I did due diligence work, financial due diligence on other companies. And in the 2008, 2009 cycle, you know, there's that famous saying, like you should buy while there's blood in the street. And I was like, it is all over the street right now. So I left and started doing real estate full-time, trying to buy properties as fast as I could. Kind of the BRR model, I think, before it was really a thing that's out there in the marketplace. And then the market changed where Fannie and Freddie would only allow you five properties before they would stop buying. So the government loans like dried up overnight. I think we were like seven properties in. And you had to reinvent myself again with uh, private loans, you know, going out and like raising capital capital and trying to buy properties, you know, strictly with private loans at like crazy interest rates. And it worked. Yeah. You could have given up, but you found a way to make it happen. That's great. Yeah, I could have it, but it's exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's just fun to put these things together to see it happen. And to your point, somebody else is paying for it. Somebody else is buying you an asset. And did you start investing as an LP ever? Or were you always GP side? We've always been active. And I think, you know, interesting segue into the purpose of this podcast is the limited partner is that that is the goal, right? Like that's ultimately the goal working as a, you know, the lesson that I've learned, and I feel like this turned in your podcast here, but the lesson that I've learned here is that, you know, it is a job to be active in real estate and to do it well and to understand, you know, all the nuances, property management, insurance, like it is not just a set it and forget it activity if you are basically the operator. So the goal has always been to transition to a true LP. Part of this is, yes, we've done some passive investments, but how do we do it right? How do you do it better? How do you cut all the riffraff out? Because it's been done and it's been done well. And I don't need to go reinvent the wheel. I just need to talk to enough people like you to show me how to do it right. Let's segue into LPs. Yes. I'll continue on my story a little bit more. I started investing probably around 2010. And again, that was an easy time to invest and make money. No matter what commercial property you bought, whether it was a vacant retail building, office building, medical building, you were going to find a way to make money at it because the economy was on an uptick, recovery from the crash. So I did that for five years and I thought I was killing it, doing really well, and then couldn't find any more deals. So I thought the market is at a peak, 2015. I'm like, all right, market's overheated. I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. And I started selling a lot of my properties and investing the profits into other people's LP deals, multifamily LP deals. Next six months went by and I'm like, okay, I might've been wrong about the economy being at a peak because it's going up still obviously very, very wrong about that. So then I thought to myself, by this time, I put a bunch of my money into LPs with other people's investments. And I thought all these other guys that are still killing it, what are they doing that I'm not? And granted, a lot of my circle was residential investors, but nonetheless, they were still killing it. So, you know, they were building teams, they were getting bigger. And I realized they were out there hustling. They were putting themselves out there. They were networking. And I had an easy ride for five years because I could literally get on to the MLS, find a commercial building and just buy it, get tenants in it and start making money at it. But when things got hard, I made the excuse 
the market's overheated. Too many coastal buyers are coming into the Midwest. And I made every excuse you can think of to justify me just not hustling. And when I fixed that mindset, I started uh, mentoring other people. I started doing a lot more networking, lunches, letting people know that I was in real estate. Because even five years deep in real estate, people still thought I was an IT guy. That was a me problem, right? That's my fault. So once I changed those things, the deals started coming back in again. It was great. But I also love being an LP investor, getting those huge negative K1s at the end of the year to offset other gains. I've continued an LP investor as well as doing my active deals. I love that story because I think it a couple takeaways, right? And it's uh, tangential to what I was just saying before is it is a game. Like if you're going to be active, there is a lot of upside. There's a lot of equity upside. There's a lot more potential. If you want to be passive, still a lot of upside to certain degrees. Like you probably found that as an LP, you're getting similar returns to what you're used to without having to do all of the extra legwork, which I think is what most of our audience is looking for. But what's really important and, you know, kind of the emphasis and I'd love to get your take on it is how do you find the right people to work with? Because that is so important. You know, a sloppy GP can take a great investment and, and run it right into the ground. So what, what's your take on that? I wish I had an intelligent answer for you, but I don't. My very first LP investment, and I actually didn't even know what a syndication was, but Joe Fairless, he asked me to be on his podcast first. Did the podcast, uh, super nervous about it. And we went out to lunch afterwards and he told me he buys apartments and raises money from other people. And the returns are about 20% annualized upon sale. And I thought, okay, this is insane. I don't have to do anything. I just give you the money and I get a check every quarter. Yeah. So I committed a hundred grand at that lunch. I went home and I'm like, I'm an idiot. Like this is too good to be true. And sure enough, uh, you know, we've been investing with him ever since. And the returns have always outpaced what's in the pro forma. I have not looked elsewhere. I've not seriously looked elsewhere. I've seen a lot of other GPs, a lot of other syndicators, but because his returns have always been there, uh, they've made it through COVID. Their properties in Dallas made it through that freeze where all the pipes were breaking and they never skipped a beat. So until something happens to cause me to look elsewhere, I'll stick to what I know. If that makes sense. It makes total sense. And I think that one sounds like you stumbled into just like a great opportunity. But you know, I do think one, I know Joe and Joe's amazing. I think his ability to communicate authentically and tell it like it is and, and some of his horror stories on the front end and the lessons he, he he learned before he met you was probably really beneficial to you, but you would probably have known in your first deal if you didn't like what you saw, right? Was it whether it be communications, any of those things? I agree. The communication, I think, is incredibly important. And I've seen a lot of other deals fall apart, not just real estate deals, a lot of business deals turn really bad because of lack of communication or poor communication. So when syndicators or people that take other people's money don't realize you now work for that person, that's when things fall apart, right? I've literally read emails from operators that have said, hey, you guys are passive investors. I would prefer you remain that way, passive. Blown away, right? If somebody invested money with you, you should take their phone call all hours of the night. I mean, you're a new employer. 
right? I mean, what do you feel? This is from all the people I've talked to, right? I think one of the, the most advantageous things about having a podcast is I get to talk to a, a bunch of great people and the network is very small and, and the world is relatively small of people that are doing it good. But every single GP that I've spoken with that I respect has told me in one fashion or another that they initially underestimated the investor relations side of the business, right? You think, okay, look, we, we go out, we find a deal, then we go get the LPs ready, we place the capital, and then we move on. And it's not that way at all. And all of the successful ones have completely changed their business model to focus on their limited partners and in communications and how they communicate and when. Because I, I think that there's a, for all of us that are in the active space who have raised money, it is very nerve wracking to send out a bad email or have a communication of like, hey, things didn't go to plan. There's often the, the hope that, look, maybe we can just kind of let this one slide and we'll get everything back on track and we'll move forward and it'll be okay. Sometimes that probably works out, but like generally doesn't. And I think that everybody that I respect that has responded to kind of that question about like, what's one of their biggest mistakes? It is sugarcoating and probably delaying communications that are less than favorable. And that's been the biggest change. And, and I'm looking for that. Like I, when, when I talk to GPs, I want to know that they've they've kind of overcome that hurdle. That's a good point. So do you ask them for past communications on different deals? Yeah, actually, that's a good question. I typically want to talk with investors that are already in the space and I would ask them, how has the communication been? Like I haven't necessarily gotten synced up on past communications specifically, but I think that's a great idea. I've got to ask you a question. I literally just took on investors for the very first time two weeks ago. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I've, I've never wanted to or needed to take on investors. This was a way to reward a lot of other people that let me in on their deals. And I'm hyper paranoid about the communication aspect more so than anything. And I thought about it, a million different things to do. Do I start a private Facebook page where I have all the updates and any milestones? Do I send out weekly emails, monthly emails? How in-depth are they? A one page or one paragraph? Or do I include up-to-the-minute financials? And uh, what's your recommendation on that? My recommendation is just to figure out how you can be progressively more transparent. Meaning, is there a possibility that you could eventually work to like, hey, if you want to log in and just see what's happening, you can see it real time versus waiting for me to, to send it to you. And that's probably ideal. I guess my suggestion would be whatever you agree to, and everybody kind of agrees to in terms of like what iterations or how often they want to be communicated with, stick to that and be like very transparent. Do you ask each individual investor what their preference is on communication? Yes. You do? Oh, okay. You know, another mutual friend of, of ours that we have, Brian Adams, you know, this is kind of one of his, how do I find investors? How do I bring in the right investors? Because just because somebody has money doesn't mean that they need to be in your deal. And maybe sometimes in the beginning of time, you would feel like that's the case, right? Because you're like, hey, I need money and any dollar is a good dollar. But he suggested from the lessons he's learned to ask them, what are you looking for? Like, what do you want to see? Now, that doesn't mean that you tailor your program to every single person. Now, that could be that like eventually, the systems get sophisticated enough that you could, but you know, whatever he agrees upon, it's like, whether it be monthly, it could be weekly, biweekly, whatever the number is, he communicates. And then whatever, what he says he's going to send, he sends every single time. And I think that just knowing that upfront so that you can be forthcoming with, this is what I'm going to do. 
And then every time it comes in, it's there. And most of the time people aren't even going to read it. But if it's there or if it's like, hey, you know, the subject is like slight bump or something like that, they will read it. And they would rather know. And most LPs, if you're an accredited investor, and this is not universal, and this is part of the reason I'm building this community, is that, you know, they've seen some bumps in the road. They know what it looks like. They're not naive to think that like every month, every quarter, every year is going to be perfect. And then communicating when it's not perfect immediately. You know, like if something comes up, this is the other point I would make is that, you know, Brian's counseled me too, is like, if something comes up, communicate it immediately. You know, don't wait till the next, you know, scheduled communication, which could be at the end of the month and hope that you can get it fixed. Just go ahead and communicate it. And the appreciation is there. And most of the times you won't even hear a peep. Everybody's like, great, like found it, got it under control, like go do it. Yeah, I like that approach. And I'll, I'll use that. And do you think it helps with us having that corporate background where you have to communicate effectively? What do you think? It's a double-edged... You can't hide information. You've got to be very forthcoming with it, right? If there's a problem. Yeah, I would say there's the human side. This is, you know, part of some of my Achilles heel is that, you know, I come from a background where everything's got to be very sanitized and like totally politically correct and, you know, don't want to say the wrong things and landmines. And I think what that does is it also tends to take away like who you are as a person. Because if somebody's investing with Osh, they're investing with Osh. Like they trust you more than the asset itself. And they want to see that come through consistently. They don't want to see it turn into a sterile corporate thing. And I know that, yes, I think that coming from a corporate background gives you the ability to say like, yes, I understand that like there's communication requirements. But I think it also, in my case, I've found that it tends to lead me down the path of being a little bit more sanitized and saying it, you know, trying to be super polished. And I've got to continue to let my personality come through so that when somebody reads a communication from me, they know it's from me. It's not from the machine. Yeah, good point. What are you seeing right now in terms of passive returns, a range? It's all over the place, right? So when the market has changed, let's say in the past year, you've seen an exodus from office, right? So the the actual office risk profile is higher because nobody, I mean, we still don't know what the office space is going to look like. So cap rates in the office could be, you know, by the way, this is, we're, we're talking January 11th of 2022, and this is not financial advice, but they could be in the the 7% range. Whereas you could see a commercial multifamily in the three, sub three range from a cap rate perspective, which compresses cash flow, which means that, you know, your pref return might be compressed a little bit of what you're used to seeing on kind of the, the monthly, the returns, but the overall IRR still could still be like mid upper teens from a conservative, this is what I'll pro forma to you, um, all the way into the 20s, which is like probably the reality of the situation. And, and assuming that cap rates persist to a certain degree where they are, there is a lot of upside to these value add plays where you've got these really low cap rates. You know, the, the upside on the, on the disposition could go way up, right? And kind of juice those returns significantly. But you've got to wait for those. And I think that that's a blend of, you know, when you're looking at a deal, what are you looking for? Are you looking for the cash flow? Are you looking for the overall, you know, return? Because if you're looking for the cash flow, you might find that you need to look at different asset classes to get that cash flow return that you're looking for versus the overall IRR, which 
actually could be higher in some of these compressed cap rate scenarios. I agree with you. Uh, looking at different asset classes, I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of these multifamily guys, I've tried for years to get them to look at office, industrial, retail, medical, and it seems like there's a mental barrier. They think it's too difficult, requires too much money or whatever it may be, right? But there's huge opportunities, especially now and in other asset classes compared to multifamily. But everybody keeps becoming a multifamily syndicator. Yes. Probably a thousand new ones a day. Like okay, If you look at the market, I mean, it seems to be the most stable, right? If people are leaving the office, where are they going? They're going home. Right. And if you think about the the trends in real estate as people try and figure out well, what does that mean? Am I working virtually? Am I working hybrid? There's a lot of people moving into multifamily. There is a trend, not just like I'm investing in multifamily, but physically like moving from maybe the city to a multifamily out in the suburbs to figure out like, does this work for me? And then two, it's becoming the office. It's like taking some of this office and moving it into multifamily. And therefore from a risk profile, the multifamily looks very safe. You've seen an exodus of the office investors into multifamily, but you've got the multifamily just retrenching, right? They're getting more, more and more into multifamily. Like everybody's coming here. This must be the hottest market. But I think that there is a lot of opportunity for diversification. What do you think? Well, so I've always been a value-add investor. Two deals that I've done where I've taken on investors. The latest one is an 18% pref. Everybody else is doing eight, right? Why not flip the script and do something different? So our investors get an 18% preferred return. And then there's a 30% upside beyond that. So the 70-30 split is in favor of the GP. So they'll get an additional 30%. So to me, from an investor's perspective, it's a much safer investment versus the 8% PREF and a 70-30 split in their favor because that split may or may not happen, right? So my deals, because I can make close to 20% passively, my internal deals, if I'm doing them, the cash on cash return has to be above 30%. And that's without sale. That's pure cash on cash return annualized, but they're all value add plays. For the listeners out there, like just to clarify what he's saying is that a lot of the pro formas that you'll see in the IRRs and the cash on cash returns assume some sales number out in the future, five to seven years. And like, let's be honest, we don't know what that's going to be. Is the, you know, the cap rates that have slid, they have slid all the way down into like the twos, threes range. Are they going to go back up to five? If they are, that sale price that we're assuming is going to be drastically different. So what Ash has just brought up is that you know he's looking at cash on cash returns specifically on the cash, irregardless of what happens in the future with the sale, which I think is just a really key point in how you look at the deals. And glad you brought that up because a lot of syndicators will have a cap rate where they purchase, let's say at four, and then on their pro forma, they have an exit cap rate at three and a half or something like that, which doesn't make sense. You can't underwrite a deal, in my opinion, that way. If anything, go the other way. If you bought it at a four cap, exit at a four and a half or five cap and make your numbers work. Yeah, very important for people when they analyze deals. Yeah, and I think that that's just a probably a great rule of thumb, right? If you're looking at a deal and somebody is showing you an IRR based on some numbers, really just a way to check it conservatively is to look at the cap rate. So what's the entry cap rate? Let's just say it's four. If the exit cap rate is at four or lower, it's not a conservative estimate. You should expect to see half a point to a point on top of the exit cap rate, assuming that the market conditions change and that it's not, it's going to be unfavorable. And the reason that's important is that it just shows that there's real cushion in the deal to make this work. And if the market's 
stay where they are or they actually improve and the cap rates get lower, great, like that's gravy for you. But if they don't, they actually start to creep up. Like you have done a little bit of diligence and you've got your investment in a place where it's it's not reliant on some future cap rate that, you know, five to seven years, who knows? Right. So you do a great job of educating people on LPs. Do you also educate real estate investors on this? I feel like a lot of the single family guys, the wholesalers, you know, the very successful ones, albeit, I don't know that they know what the returns are being a passive investor, because a lot of times they shoot for 10, 15% annualized cash on cash return. Do they know that they can get that passively? I would say short answer is no, because I've been there myself. And this is, I don't want to say it's like a hidden world, but it seems, you know, I think that the accredited investor barrier creates issues in terms of like what you're looking at. So you think about ultra high net worth, high net worth people that are accredited investors. They're the ones that are looking at these deals where you've got guys that are in the wholesale space, real estate, like they are hustlers by trade and they're going to go out there and they're going to scrap for it. And it's a very, very different mentality. And I think like similar to what you were talking about before, like when you got lazy, you know, you were, you were investing in a great market. I think a lot of people just get heads down in what they're doing and they're, they're like, well, I just hustle and this is what I do and this is how I work. And they, they don't even open their eyes to other possibilities. Right. How do you fix that? Well, I mean, I think part of it is the whole purpose of the limited partner podcast is the podcast itself is just the tip of the iceberg for a community and the community like they were intending that I'm building here is where can you go to learn about this? Right. Cause there aren't, there's like the in, international limited partners association, which is for institutional investors. That's not for your everyday guy. Then there's, you know, passive investing like sites. There's other folks that just focus on real estate. This community is about limited partners and what it means. How do you find good operators? How do you, you know, what, what are the basic mechanics of a limited partnership? How do you get involved? Like, what do you need to, what are your accredited investor? What does that mean? And just creating an education, but then also building a community around that where people can interact. You know, everybody that's on this podcast, like I love these conversations, but I also want to give you access to my community. So that as things come up and people want to have a conversation with you, they can. And, and that I think is where the magic is really going to happen is, is in the community itself as it evolves and, you know, there's education, but there's just people that are out there that are doing it that they can talk to. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, Ash, I know we are at our time here, but I always like to finish the podcast with a bit of gratitude. None of us get to where we are on our own. Uh, I'd like to give you the opportunity to call out somebody or a couple of somebodies that opened your eyes, gave you a leg up along the way. I really thank uh, Joe Fairless and not trying to plug him at all. But uh, one of the things great about him is he gives away all his knowledge. And I would like to think I would have done the same thing had I not met him. But I don't know, because he's literally written books, giving away all his secrets. I followed in his footsteps. So I have anybody that wants to learn, I'll teach them everything I know. And that pays back, you know, tenfold. Joe's amazing. And I think that if he, he's got a book, the best ever book. And if you haven't read it and you're interested in commercial real estate, multifamily, it is so detailed. It's unlike anything else that's out there. And then too, I, I've reached out to Joe directly as of reading the book and he responded. So to your point, he is very giving. And you know, I would echo <laughs> your shout out. And then obviously... Ash, yourself, thank you for being on the show, sharing your knowledge. We'll, we'll link to you in the show notes. So if anybody is interested in, in connecting with you, I think they should. And, and you know, Ash, you've been really responsive to me. So I'm excited to have you in the community. Well, it's great to get to know you. So thank you for the opportunity. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Limited Partner Podcast. 
please subscribe and leave a review. If there's any reason you wouldn't leave us a five-star review, please email me directly at jw at jakewiley.com. Your feedback is always appreciated. Now, the show is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the limited partner community. It's a community where limited partners can come together, learn about what best in class looks like, opportunities, and most importantly, a place to connect. There is nothing out there like this. So head over to thelimitedpartner.com and sign up. We'll see you next time.